For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of worth. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? First of all, I'd like to begin by celebrating Ann Kittredge, who is our sponsor for the week. Uh, please check out her amazing CD, Reimagine, where she has reimagined many classic songs, many from the movies. And the movies we are going to be celebrating tonight because we have the incredible Alan K. Road. I want to tell you, Alan, I have been down the rabbit hole listening to your amazing podcast and studying your amazing history. And I am thrilled that you said yes to being here tonight when I know there are so many hundreds of places that you could have been tonight. But here we are to celebrate the movies, to celebrate you and to celebrate all that you do. And thank God that you are preserving this incredible legacy of these great films. And I want to begin, as I do with every show, by asking who or what are you celebrating tonight? Well, I'm celebrating being on with Richard Skipper Celebrates. And uh, <laughs> to mark the occasion, I, I got this uh, shirt that has been hanging in my closet for a while from Hilo Hatties in Hawaii. And this is the Jack Lord look <laughs> from Y50 in 1973. But seriously, um, um, I'm Alan K. Rohde. I'm glad to be here. And thank you for having me on, Richard. I appreciate it. I got it. this from Palm Springs, where I know that you do your classic film noir film festivals, which yes. we're going to talk about in a few moments. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid, uh, I my parents used to drop me off. I grew up in a very small town in Conway, South Carolina, mm -hmm. and uh, the Holiday Movie Theater uh, was a babysitter, essentially, for me. Uh, it was one of those theaters, uh, only the one cinema, and boy, don't you miss those. Uh, mm -hmm. The smell of popcorn from the moment you walked in the door, uh, that experience of my parents dropping me off and spending a whole day there. Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing uh, they would show, believe it or not, even then cartoons and kitty films and uh, the classic Hal Roach films were being shown at that time. This mm -hmm. was all before uh, a lot of those films went to late night television and everything. You, on the other hand, grew up immersed in that world. Uh, your mother uh, worked in films, you, uh, your family as it said in our uh, in your bio, it's in your DNA. When were you first aware that you were living in the midst of this world of Hollywood and cinema? I don't know if I, I think I became aware of it and started thinking about it much, much later because, you know, when you're a kid, you just are, you're in the moment, you know, and, uh, you know, watching watching movies and, and uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit and say, you know, there were, uh, you know, five or six channels. This was when you had something called an antenna on your chimney or the roof of your apartment you building. And you had to try and turn it. And uh, I remember my brother and I, uh, my 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 uh, parents had a TV upstairs and we would wrap Reynolds wrap around the rabbit ears to try and pick up a Philadelphia TV station 
so we could watch Calling Dr. Death with Patricia Morrison, who I met in New York City as an 11-year-old at a revival of Kiss Me, Kate. Wow. Uh, so so we were uh, we were a movie family. Uh, the, the, the influence came de- definitely from my mother's side and my brother and I and um, my grandfather, who was my mother's stepfather, was a, a composer, musician who did mood music and silent films and started his own comp- composing uh, music business in New York City and uh, worked with Garbo, worked with all these different people. Uh, so I grew up in this whole thing of my mother watching a, t- a movie saying, look for Mary Emery, who was uh, a, a uh, longtime, small-time bit actress who was uh, Ricky Ricardo, Desi Arnaz's uh, mother on I Love Lucy. And, you know, if you saw a party in a 1930s movie or a jury or something, you would see Mary there glide through there or a friend of theirs glide through as a waiter through a Sherlock Holmes movie. I always told my mother later on, Mom, you knew all the big stars, (laughs) you know, but I, I just grew up in it and it's always been a part of me and my own career. Uh, I, I ended up with some twists and turns. I, I had a I had a brush with a possible career as Goodfellas in my as Leo Gorsi would put it in my Ute in in northern <laughs> New Jersey, uh, uh, and I was headed down the wrong road. And fortunately, I ended up in the Navy and uh, had a lot of fun, had a, a great career, and then a career. But uh, about uh, over twenty years ago, I went back to the movies and writing and doing what I do now, which is. I'm, I'm passionate about and uh, uh, I'm enjoying myself. Well, I want to go back to Patricia Mars and I had the good fortune of interviewing her on her 100th birthday and she was still very sharp as a tack. She was right yep. there and great. Now, you just said that you were trying to get a Philadelphia station. I was under the impression that you grew up on the West Coast. Am I mistaken? No, 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 no. no. What happened was is my... Uh, my mother was born in Hollywood in 1922, and and uh, her, my grandmother, her mother, and her father, her her birth father, who I never met, he passed away uh, way before I came on the scene. He put on rodeos with Hoot Gibson and did all of this stuff at Gilmore Stadium, where uh, the Farmers Market is, which celebrated its 88th, uh, is celebrating its 88th anniversary. Believe it or not. And my mother used to go there and see Sydney Greenstreet with a big hamper basket loading up and shopping and all of this stuff. But what happened was, is my mother uh, was her first husband was uh, a, a first cousin of Yule Brenner. And he was a cartoonist. And she used to hang out with Yule when he had hair and they played the guitar and all this other stuff. But at any rate, that marriage didn't work out. So when my uncle came back from World War II, he and my father were both in the Army Air Corps, and they were both on the same troop ship coming back from the South Pacific. And my uncle Smitty was married to my Aunt Paula, who was my mother's youngest sister. So they came back, and uh, my mother was uh, living in a place called Metropolitan Plaza, which was near in the La Brea Miracle Mile area. I think it's all gone now. And so uh, Uncle Smitty came home with my dad. My dad met my mother. Two weeks later, they were married in the Hollywood Lutheran Church. So 
my grandmother and grandfather were both in the Signal Corps and they had gotten sent back to Astoria as film editors and got a toehold in, uh, in Astoria, lived in Queens. And my grandfather started his business there. My father had to make money. He studied to be an actuary. So the family ended up going to the East Coast where my brother was born in 49. And then I showed up like five years later. So I was raised right around uh, New York City, about 20 miles uh, uh, out of New York City in northern New Jersey. But uh, we did vacations. I remember the first time I was in Musso and Franks was 1964 when we went on a trip. And my grandfather said, no matter what you do, you have to go to Musso and Franks and have flannel cakes. <laughs> so, you know, that was that was. So we went there, we had flannel cakes and we went, I remember this distinctly because I was 10. We went on the Universal Studios tour. And this was when Universal was still a movie studio rather than the amusement park it's become. And we went on the tour and they had these things and we went through a filming and watched a filming of the Munsters show. And then uh, uh, Fred Gwynn and Yvonne DiCarlo came over and said hi and, and Yvonne DiCarlo kissed me on the forehead. You know, uh, so that was that was an early memory. And we went by uh, one of my mother's old friends who was in movies with Hoot Gibson and Bella Lugosi. And my brother and I were all excited because uh, uh, she could tell us about the corpse vantages and black dragons. Her name was Joan Barkley and she was a close friend of my mother. So we were waiting to hear about Bella Lugosi and she couldn't remember anything. <laughs> he said he was nice and wanted to talk about Western. So I, I drifted off to watch something on TV. No Bella, no interest from me at 10 years old. <laughs> well, here's a bit of trivia today. Today is the anniversary of the Hollywood land sign going up uh, in Hollywood, of mm -hmm. course. And you know, of course, the land part of the Hollywood land sign disappeared mm -hmm. shortly after that. Yeah. Um, but I want to go back to, you know, again, you being a child and television, I am going to assume that that is where the love of film first began, uh, probably watching a lot of these classic films in black and white yep. uh, before you were even aware that what color films were really all about. Right. What was it about these films that first resonated with you? And was it film noir, which you spent a lot of your career writing and talking about that first pulled you in as far as film is concerned? Well, I think film noir came along later. I think, uh, you know, the whole movie thing was like a family thing. And then it was my brother and I and watching movies and then keeping a notebook. My brother kept a three ring binder, wrote down every movie he saw, everything like that. I started to do the same. And of course, in those days, as a kid, I gravitated towards stuff like chiller theater with uh, you know the hideous sun demon and the unearthly and all of the horror you know i used to buy famous monsters of Filmland and castle of frankenstein and all of that but the movies themselves i think what always uh pulled me in was the story the story and the actors and and the actors and i still believe this the actors that acted in the movies then uh no one looks like them. No one acts like them. I mean, when you watch Out of the Past, Robert Mitchum was 29, Kirk mm -hmm. Douglas was 30. 
but they look like they are very mature. They don't look like they came out of a cookie cutter and, and so on and so forth. And the women were glamorous and so forth. So the movies captured me. I think film noir came along later when I was watching movies like uh, DOA or Out of the Past or Mildred Pierce, where these movies weren't exactly, they weren't mysteries and they weren't melodramas. They had this style and this aura that later on, as I began like studying film and so on and so forth. And then uh, when I met Eddie Muller at the Egyptian theater, like 23 years ago, uh, when they did the first festival of film noir, and that was so long ago, the guests were people like Marie Windsor and Richard Flesher and Stanley Rubin, who became a, a really close friend of, of uh, uh, my wife and I, uh, that, that I could take these films that I had seen that really resonated with me. And I was able to understand why they were different and why they had the effect on me that they that they did and still do. So, yeah, it all started with watching watching movies on TV and, you know, uh, uh, even with the commercials and so forth. I remember watching King Kong on Million Dollar Movie and they would cut the movies up so badly to fit it in the time slot. You know, you would go and and you'd have Robert Armstrong saying something like, well, they're going to have to think of a whole lot of adjectives, new adjectives when I come back. And then. Then there's a commercial, and then when they come back to the movie, they're at Skull Island. You know, the whole the whole trip with Ray Ray modeling the costume, everything got cut out. So when I finally saw the uncut version of King Kong, I go, "Wow, they had all this stuff that no wonder, no wonder I never really thought it was as good as it was." You know, so it was. Uh, you know, they took Gunga Din and they cut out whole portions of it. So. Um, Seeing these movies intact and seeing a lot of them, as I have through the years in the theaters, uh, that uh, some of these some of these youthful uh, movies that had an effect on me and seeing them uh, and helping restore some of them uh, has been a real special thing for me. Well, thank God that now we these films cannot be cut out up the way that they were cut up at one time. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, again, uh, when I first came to New York, I moved to New York in 1979 and there were all these revival houses in New York. Oh, and yes. I was, in, I was in heaven. The Regency yes. was my home. And yep. I used to go there all the time. And I would see these films that I had seen a hundred times on TV. And I was experiencing film for the first time. Uh, but I want to ask if you ever had any aspirations to go into the film industry in any other capacity, either as an actor or on any other level uh, besides a historian or as a writer, uh, and what those experiences were like if you did pursue those areas. Well, I've done a lot of on-camera stuff, as you know, and, and I've had certain people maybe that want to be nice to me saying, you should have been an actor or you should be an actor. But beyond that, I, I think at this point in my life, my, my skill set and, and what I like to do is write uh, and, 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 and talk. And, and I'm, I'm pretty good at that. And, uh, you know, my wife has often said, you know, there's nothing that can stop me from talking once I get going. So, you know, I, I mean, at, at this point, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm now on my third career. Okay. So I had a, I had a career in the military and then I had a career in the, uh, 
for lack of a better term, in the services and, and aerospace uh, that was I had a degree of success and made some money. Uh, and now I'm uh, now I'm doing I've been doing this and I have to say what I'm doing now is a lot more fun, although I will say when when people meet me and they say, oh, you were in the military and sometimes they'll kind of look at me like, you know, I'm going to like pull a knife or, you know, that that I'm a, um, a, a somehow I served with Rambo or something, you know, because because it used to be that there was a common association with the military, with the gen with my father's generation, mm-hmm. when people of his age would get together and talk about the war, they were talking about World War Two. And there was a commonality because with the draft, everyone had some sort of relationship or service and so on and so forth. But uh, for me, the military was a godsend. It gave me direction. It gave me purpose. Uh, and I, it was fun. It was I mean, I did stuff. I really got my inner Errol Flynn out. I mean, so here I am, someone that hadn't been to college, and I'm driving a one-of-a-type million-dollar ship around, and I'm doing diving and salvage stuff, and I'm doing submarine rescue. I'm on a submarine at the bottom of the Mediterranean, and I'm doing all of this, uh, 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 some of it still classified stuff, and it was fun. I mean, I never I never was put in a position where I had to compromise my principles uh, uh, and I had a good time. And then right around about 16 years, it 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 was like not fun anymore. So I had to figure out, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I figured from that point, I better figure out on how to make some money. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so I, I I went into that, and then from that, uh, you know, I went into doing what I do now. Uh, so, but I never planned anything. All of this just kind of happened. Well, I, I, never, was, I never I never sat down with a list and made an outline. And well, next you do this, and then you do. I never had a plan. I just did what I wanted to do. Well, what I wanted to do, and what I also thought was necessary for me to do. I guess would be a good way. Well, Alan, I want to talk about how it happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Because first of all, when you were serving in the military, uh, I can't imagine that the world that you're living now was even a, a thought in the back of recesses of your mind. Uh, how did the path you're on now even begin for you? Uh, I think it began when I, I wrote the book about Charles McGraw. Uh, I became fascinated with Charlie because of the 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 first off, his face looks like a Dick Tracy, jut jawed, real tough guy. And that voice that went with it, I thought he was a very unique presence on screen uh, in anything he did. So I got fascinated with him. There he is. Mm-hmm. And um, I started researching without knowing I was researching his life. And I found out a couple things. I found out that he died tragically in 1980 by falling through a shower door, cutting an artery and bleeding to death, an awful way. And I, these, these were in the days where it was easy to get information. So I wanted to find out more about him. So I was able to get his death certificate from the Department of Coroner here in Los Angeles. So I got that and I noticed that the signature on the death certificate and everything was a woman that wasn't his wife, but he was still married. So then I looked up the house that he had died in 
and I noticed that the property hadn't changed hands. So uh, I said, I thought, well, the person that owned the house when he died is still living there. So her name was Mildred Black. And I wrote her a letter, you know, hi, I'm Alan Rohde. I'm, I'm doing research. I mean, I didn't even have the idea of a book, but I said, I wondered if you would talk to me. And I sent the letter in and nothing happened. And so by that time, I was making regular trips up to L.A. to go see movies like I went and saw, I believe it was either the Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur, and I met Charlton Heston in the men's room at the Egyptian theater. And, uh, you know, he was he was in the next urinal stall next to me. And I looked at him. And I, there, but I won't touch it. Yeah, I'll go there. But I said, I said, I said to him, I said, you know, no one's going to believe this. And he said, as long as you may, and then Heston says, as long as you don't make any jokes about parting of the Red Sea right now. And we went out in the lobby and talked and he couldn't have been nicer to me. He was a really, really nice guy. And I would do stuff like that. So I came up for, uh, I think, the first or second film noir festival. This is in 1999 or something. And I went by uh, this house that's in Studio City. And uh, I was with a friend and there were some guys working in the yard. And I said, I went up and there was a retaining wall. And I said, is Miss Black here? And he said, sure. And uh, he said, Millie, someone's here to see you. And this nice older lady with a visor came on. And I said, hi, I'm Alan Rohde. And she said, you're the guy that wrote me about Charlie. I was hoping you'd show up. Why don't you come in? Mm. And that led to me finding all about Charlie McGraw, meeting his daughter, uh, all the stuff that he left, the euphemera. I still have his raincoat from the movie The Killers hanging in my front closet. Uh, all this stuff. And and Millie uh, became, we became very close. By that time, I moved up here. And Millie and Gemma and I, uh, my wife, we became very close. In fact, my wife became one of her caregivers. Uh, and uh, so at a certain point, I said, you know, I have to tell this story. Because that opened up meeting... Uh, People like Bobby Hoy, all these old stunt people and what Studio City used to be and so forth. And I said, I, I need to write this story. So I took a, I, 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 where I was working at the time wasn't really satisfying. So I quit, took a hiatus to write the book. And the book did, you know, within the scope of, you know, writing a book about Charles McGraw, did rather well. And I actually had a knack for it. So I just said, this is what I want to do. This is this is where my destiny lies. You mentioned earlier your brother used to take notes in a three binder notebook. Um, yeah. Were you a writer as well prior to writing this book, or did uh, you? I, I I was when when you say I was not a published writer. I, I know that, but I, I had a, I always had a facility for writing uh, and reading. Um, our house was filled with books. My father. My father went to Caltech and he could have either been a physics or mathematics professor or a history professor. And he had a real passion for history, which I think I, I know that I got that from him. Because uh, uh, in addition to movies, I'm a big Americana history, world history. I've got books all over the place. I have, you know, another room filled with books and someone comes over and says, gee, you, you also read that? And I said, yeah, this is the Cosa Nostra section of my library. So I, I, I have all of that. So I think I got that. I got that 
the the yen for reading and writing from my father because my father was also a good writer and so was my I mean, my brother, uh, when Leonard Malton was in his teens putting out Film Fan Monthly, my brother was writing articles on uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald and Helene Thymick. Huh. So, uh, uh, and still, my brother lives in England now with his wife. But if I have a question on 30s movies, I'll email him. And he usually he usually knows the answer. That's great. Uh, was, that's this an, was this an easy book to sell? Well, McGraw, uh, yeah, because it was done with McFarlane, and their, I mean, their, their, uh, uh, their entree is that they will they will publish books on the most obscure stuff as long as the book is professional and well written. And I kind of just fumbled my way through it, and uh, I had no problem with it. I, I didn't even have a copy editor. I copy edited it myself, and it was like two hundred and thirty pages. I think not a long book. And uh, uh, the only the only quarrel I remember is um, uh, I got friendly with James Elroy mm. and went out to dinner with him and he offered to write a blurb. And I remember going to the publisher saying, hey, James Elroy is going to write a blurb for the book. And they said, well, we don't really do blurbs. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, that that kind of tells you where the publisher was at at that time. And I said, rather than rather than going high order i just said well you know when since the mutual objective of both you and i is to sell books and to sell as many books as possible if i have an endorsement from the greatest living noir fiction writer that's kind of a good thing isn't it isn't that a good thing so they they said yeah i guess you're right and and then i said we need to use film noir in the title you know, of the book and so on and so forth. But it was, it was all, I, I, I really haven't had any serious uh, difficulty with the publishers. Agents is a different story. I, I think finding a good agent is like finding a good husband or wife, more difficult perhaps. But uh, uh, no, I, 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 after the McGraw book and the reception it got, I, I, I just felt this is this is what I need to do. This is what I'm good at. This is what I like to do. And that's that's that, I guess. How long did it take you to write the book? And what did you what surprised you the most about yourself in terms of the fact that, first of all, you set out with a goal, you accomplished the goal, you uh, and did the book turn out the way that you imagined the book to turn out? I think it turned out better than I imagined. And and I'm not trying to strut sitting down here, or, or, By all means, or, go or, but I'm not. Uh, I think what really uh, made me feel good is uh, there was a stuntman actor who I became very friendly with named Bobby Hoy, who did a lot of stunt work and a lot of acting. And he was kind of like Charlie McGraw's little brother. And he, uh, you know, Millie said Bobby would follow Charlie around like a little like a little brother or a puppy almost. And then uh, Bobby quit drinking and McGraw didn't. So, you know, if you're an alcoholic, your friends have to drink with you, you know, and they they kind of diverge because Bobby went to AA and he, he quit drinking and cleaned himself up. But and and I did several long talks with him and we became very friendly. We went to the movies together and did stuff. And and his wife, uh, uh, Kiva, uh, the four of us became friends. And uh, I sent Bobby a copy of the book and he left a voicemail for me. I missed the call. And he said, Alan, 
I just want to tell you, you're magnificent. Your book is magnificent. You captured Charlie. Uh, he said, it's just fabulous. You really got him. And when you have somebody who knows somebody that you write about and you get that type of, of uh, accolade, that made me really feel good uh, that somebody that knew him well thought that I, I, I got him. And so um, so from that aspect, the book turned out well. And, you know, I still get checks uh, uh, once good. or twice a year on it. You know, they're they've they've gone down to the point where I could get like, you know, a spaghetti dinner for one or maybe a can of SpaghettiOs. But <laughs> I, I'm still I'm still getting checks. So so and and people occasionally I will get a, a letter or an email from someone that says, I really love this book and so on and so forth. So that that's the gratifying part. I mean, the, the money is uh, no one, no one in their right mind goes into saying that they're going to be a nonfiction writer about deceased Hollywood people that they're going to make a living doing this, you know, do you know how many times I've heard that? Yeah. It's just, <laughs> It's just, I mean, it's, 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 it's just, it's just the way it is. And I mean, I do a lot of commentaries and I do a lot of production stuff and, you know, I, uh, you know, I get checks from here and there and so on and so forth. But uh, I've had, I've had like young people come up to me at screening saying, I want to become a film historian. I want to do what you do. And I say, well, don't quit your day job. <laughs> That's first. Find it. Find a career where you can write and do this stuff, but you you you're not going to make a living doing this unless you're very lucky and you end up on TCM or something like that. But that that's like planning planning a retirement by buying lottery tickets. Exactly. Know? Now, how long did uh, after uh, this book was published and uh, did you embark upon? Uh, your next book, uh, Michael Curtin. Oh, it took. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, it was a couple years. Uh, I. I ended up going back to work. I had a company come woo me, and threw some money at me. So I went back to work, and then uh, I was talking with Patrick McGilligan, who is an esteemed biographer and the series editor for uh, uh, movie books in Kentucky. And he said, "What are you working on?" And I said, "Nothing." Uh, right now, I'm trying to think of something. And he said, you ought to write a book about a director. And I said, okay. So I started looking at that. I first thought about Julie Dassin, because mm. he and I had exchanged several letters uh, when he was in, he was in his 90s. And he would send me these letters, perfectly written in small print, uh, uh, answering my questions. And I, I really... I liked his movies and I liked him and I really respected him for uh, standing, excuse me, standing tall during the blacklist and reinventing. You know, it's kind of when you come up watching movies in my era, you end up thinking Joe Losey was was an English guy directing the servant. So he had to be an Englishman. And Dassin was a Frenchman driving Rafifi, you know, and. Losey was blacklisted and grew up in Wisconsin <laughs> and Dassin was born in Connecticut and grew up on the Lower East Side in the Yiddish theater and all of that. But I realized with Dassin uh, that I would have to spend a lot of time in Greece and a lot of time in France to really track his life. And that that seemed to be uh, a, a, a bridge too far for me to do. 
And at the same time, I had become very good friends with a actor named Richard Erdman, Dick Erdman, who was in Stalag 17 and Cry Danger and 10 million TV shows. And I had him out to Palm Springs for uh, the, uh, the Blue Gardenia. And Dick and his wife, uh, Gemma and I became very good friends with them and, and Academy Award viewing parties with the repartee of, of uh, uh, going on and playing games and Lee Merriweather and her husband. And we, we were very close. And I talked to him and he said, you ought to write a book about Mike Curtiz. Mike was my champion. And he had this really great story of being out of high school and doing a cold reading with Curtiz and his secretary and getting a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. He said, Mike was one of the great directors. Everyone forgot about him. So I started looking at Curtiz, and I found out no one had done a book on him. Mm. Nobody. So uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I wrote a proposal. Uh, Kentucky Press picked it up. Originally, it was going to be two years and 150,000 words, and it turned out to be six years and many hundred thousands of words at 712 pages. Uh, uh, when you when you start writing about someone who directed whole and in part 181 movies, I mean, think about that, 181 movies. And um, there were times in working on this book that I recalled uh, John Huston's line to Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, where he tells Nicholson, you may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> because it, I realized to do this right, it was going to take a long time. I ended up going to Hungary, uh, and and uh, I found grandchildren all over the place and out-of-wedlock kids and all of this whole stuff. And then finding out, how the movies were really made and the whole conventional wisdom of Curtiz being a, uh, what I called a vocational mechanic or a hack of the studio system based on reading, you know, Andrew Saris's uh, uh, nonsense about uh, the auteur theory and all this other stuff and going through all the production files and the memos and finding out how movies were really made. Uh, it wasn't like Rembrandt painting a picture uh, it was very, very different. And, uh, and then writing about it and, uh, it, it, it turned in, it turned out to be a mission. And, uh, as it turned out, the book has been very well received and done quite well. So, um, I'm happy about that. You mentioned that it took you six years. Uh, were there ever moments where you said, you know, I I'm giving up on this or was the passion so intense that it just kept you going? Oh, I kept going. There was no doubt. There was no doubt that I was going to finish it. The question was going to be when. And also, I was working full time. Uh, you know, when I used to uh, when when we used to do uh, Noir City at uh, at the Egyptian, uh, I was working full time. So I would bring in a sport jacket, tie and everything to my job, work a full day from early in the morning, then get cleaned up at work, change into clothes drive from Van Nuys to Hollywood, host two screenings, come back, get back, go to bed at one o'clock in the morning, and then get up at seven and do it all over again for like 10 days. Wow. Uh, so, wow. yeah, I had uh, th I had a lot of energy. Uh, so th the Curtis thing, it really wasn't a question of if, it was a question of how long it would take. 
And, you know, I would be in Chicago working on a chapter. I just kept working, working. And um, and I had in my head, I knew exactly where I was going to go with it. And I tried to develop each chapter as a mini book that had a continuous narrative thread through it and a bridge to the next chapter. And I had a accordion file of just a endless amount of euphemera notes and everything. And I had it organized by year and went through it. And uh, it, I think it turned out well. And did the publisher ever give you any deadline on this? Or did you always have the flexibility that you would know when it was ready to get the to publisher it? was very flexible with me. And I just said, you know, um, I'm working on this. This is where I'm at, but it ain't going to get done by next year. And they just said, fine. They were, they were very, you know, they, they, no one put any pressure on me whatsoever to, to, to get done and so forth. And I have to say uh, how Kentucky press, what's happened now is time has gone on the university presses like Kentucky press. They're the ones that are publishing important books now because the mainstream publishers in New York, run by people in their 40s and in their 30s, uh, most of the people, if you stop 20 people on the street, how many would know who James Cagney is? Exactly. You know, uh, it, it just, the, the mainstream uh, 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 New York publishers, unless you have a track record of selling 50,000 copies, they're not going to want to talk to you. So I really appreciate the people at Kentucky Press. I was able to get uh, Nancy Olson's forthcoming memoir, and she's she's a, she's a dynamo, and I got to know her quite well. And she had a manuscript, and I tried to get it published, and two places shot it down. And um, Ashley at Kentucky, the director, she said, "Why haven't we published this?" And I said, "You tell me." And so they're publishing they're publishing her book. And they just published uh, George Stevens Jr. book, My Place in the Sun. Uh, and and they're, they're publishing good stuff. And uh, these, these small publishers, uh, uh, um, uh, Kentucky and some of the other presses, uh, they're, they're doing God's work when it comes to publishing some of these books because the big publishers, uh, they're not, they're not going to make money or a lot of money with this stuff. So um, uh, the university presses have stepped up to the plate on these books. Well, thank God for this. You know, I remember in the 70s, it was around the time that That's Entertainment came out. There was right. a big boom in terms of nostalgia. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. All these books were published. The films of Kirk Douglas, the films of all of those books, Crown Publishers. The, the whole book world has changed completely uh, just as the movie business has and without sounding like a luddite or uh, you know an old cranky, I'm with you I, yeah, I, 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 you know i i don't like to sound like the old cranky white guy you know get off my grass type of thing and there's there's a lot of good movies and programming that's being made and everything but uh i i can't say that the publishing industry and the movie industry has gotten better i can't i can't make that statement uh, so it's uh, it's difficult, but there is an audience out there. Thank God for Turner Classic Movies and and thank goodness for a lot of the university presses that are, you know, uh, keeping the flame alive, so to speak. 
where do you see your future going as far as uh, as a writer and as uh, you know uh, uh, preserving films and the work that you're doing uh, with film noir? Uh, and do you enjoy traveling? Uh, a, a lot of the work you do, I guess, is on the West Coast. But do mm-hmm. you, uh, are you doing a lot of traveling? Uh, not any, not anymore. I used to, I, I used to do more traveling, and for obvious reasons, I just turned down a free trip to Europe because Europe is not a good place to be right now. No, uh, for a number of reasons, and I'm going to be in Chicago uh, following Eddie, uh, Eddie Muller, uh, co-hosting Noir City Chicago that I've been doing for years. We've been doing for years at the Music Box Theater. And I get to see all my old friends in Chicago and hopefully make some new ones and uh, Palm Springs. And uh, we just did Noir City previously at the Hollywood Legion Theater. And I'm the chairperson of the theater committee at the Hollywood Legion at the Hollywood Post 43. In fact, uh, I have a theater committee meeting there tonight after I do this show. So uh, most of the stuff is pretty close to home now. I don't do as much traveling as as I used to, as as uh, because of COVID and other things. Uh, but um, um, I'm 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 amenable to travel uh, within reason, and uh, uh, I certainly I certainly like doing it. And I did an enormous amount of travel uh, after I finished with the Navy and with Lockheed Martin. I was going to places all over the Middle East and Australia and all this stuff. And this was pre 9-11. So it was, uh, you know, when they said, enjoy your flight, there was some, there was some validity to that statement. (laughs) (laughs) There sure was. Yeah. But Uh, uh, yeah, I I recently went to Cinevent in Columbus, Ohio in October and recently and uh, presented a documentary that I did with Stephen Smith on the repeat performance Blu-ray about Eagle Lion films and Signed books and all of that stuff, and I'm I'm going to be at the Calabasas Library up the street from me doing a presentation, and I'll be at the Rancho Mirage Library in November, and and Noir City in Chicago, and so I'm still uh, you know I'm still moving around, but it's it's more national than international, I guess I'd say. Well, please send those dates to me, and I can keep them on the YouTube channel so that I can let uh, people who see this uh, know more sure. about. It. Uh, but Absolutely. is there another book in your near future? Two, two, two books. Uh, I have a book coming out in spring of next year. That's that's at the copy editor, and it's about the movie Blood on the Moon and the Birth of the Noir Western. Wow! And it's all about that movie, Robert Mitchum, Robert Wise, RKO how Howard Hughes ruined the studio, uh, uh, all of that stuff, and how the noir style uh, really migrated into Westerns after World War II, and how that happened, and why it happened. And due to uh, uh, changes in Hollywood, changes in the culture, the post-World War II culture, uh, the censorship, all of that stuff. So that's, that's coming out. That's a short book. That's coming out. And I am working on a biography of Elizabeth Scott. Wow. Who wow. Uh, uh, I met, talked to. I actually held her hand once. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
Uh, I've been doing research on that for about a year, and that's gotten pushed back because of COVID, because COVID, unfortunately, all the archives were closed. And I couldn't get into USC for a time, and the Academy Library was closed, and other places were closed. So now that they're opening up, uh, I'm able to do more research. And I, I've also talked to some people, have some more interviews. And uh, I'm very interested in Miss Scott because I want to write a book about a woman who lived during those times in Hollywood when it was, it was difficult, to say the least, uh, for women and, uh, uh, and, and how she became a movie star really through her relationship with Hal Wallace who it was, it's really a kind of a Pygmalion type story. And the fact that she was a very interesting woman who was really intelligent and has com been completely and largely mischaracterized by anecdote, gossip, uh, and a lot of other things. So I always, I always like to try and set the record straight. I think one of the things as a biographer is you got to tell the truth. And and as you see it and you can offer opinions on stuff that you don't know that's speculated on. But you got to you got to find whatever's there and, and use that as your guide to, to tell somebody's story. And and also, I think even though I'm a nonfiction writer, I, I like to write about people and put it in the context of telling a story like McGraw was certainly a story. Curtiz was certainly a story, and I think Elizabeth Scott is also going to be a story. So, um, Well, thank God for the work you're doing. Uh, we're going to give away a copy of your book tonight. Uh, and uh, uh, I always uh, – we, we, I have a series of wind-down questions. These are just okay. one of it. Um, a little, some of them may seem a little uh, quirky and off the wall, but uh, uh, I chose uh, the word um, altruism uh, mm -hmm. and uh, – and as you can see, the definition is the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you in both the publishing world and in the world of Hollywood, mm -hmm. who you consider the most altruistic people that you've encountered in both worlds? Oh, um one person that comes to mind is the late Stanley Rubin, who was a producer. He produced The Narrow Margin, which uh, was with the, probably one of the greatest B-movies ever made, uh, directed by uh, Richard Fleischer. And um, uh, I became very close with, uh, with Stanley and, uh, and his wife, uh, Kathleen Hughes, who is still with us in her 90s. But... Stanley put the lie that all producers are either connivers or cigar chomping fat cats or check writers. And uh, he was an old school gentleman who always did things the right way. I mean, this is a guy who was in his 90s. And if a woman came in the room, he would stand up. He would open doors. Uh, he was polite. Uh, he got smudged a little bit. Uh, by the blacklist. Uh, he was a very robust liberal, uh, but he was a fair-minded guy, and he had a, a set of standards and a, a set of ethics that uh, really 
went against the grain of the typical Hollywood producer or Hollywood operator. And, and I really was very fond of him and admired him very much. I remember there was a picture in his uh, 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 house or in his office, and he's sitting with a bunch of producers and directors and, and, and all of them famous, including one was Eddie Mannix. And Stanley was on the first negotiating team that negotiated the first contract for the Writers Guild with the movie studios. And I believe 1940 or 1939. And uh, he was a young writer with Universal. And he said, they put me on there because I was bitching at a meeting that I hadn't gotten a raise in three or four years. <laughs> and he said, so here I was sitting across the table as a young kid from Eddie Mannix, who resembled either a, a, a nightclub bouncer or a bulldog. And, and had a fearsome reputation. But as he turned out, he was, uh, he was an absolute gentleman. But I really admired Stanley for how he conducted himself, how he lived his life, uh, and, and his, his sense of rectitude and ethics. Uh, the other person that come, I come to think of is still with us, Marsha Hunt, yes. uh, who is now 104. Wow, and uh, I became really close to Marsha uh, love her dearly. Um, Marsha had a sense of, uh, I, I, I said to someone one time, uh, if you spend an evening with Marsha, you feel like you're going to go out and end world hunger or take on <laughs> some great cause because she was such a selfless person regarding working with the homeless and doing what was right and uh, I, I have a lot of stories about her, and I, I, I hold her in the highest regard as a, as a human being and the highest regard in terms of, of affection uh, and respect. Uh, she just, uh, she, they don't make them like that anymore. They certainly don't. Yeah. Uh, I have a uh, surprise question. I haven't even looked at it. I pulled mm -hmm. this up from, these, uh, from this box. Um, <clears throat> And the question is, uh, and in today's world of uh, uh, climate change, would you rather be too hot or too cold? Oh, I'm I'm definitely a rather be too hot guy. I mean, <laughs> where where I live out in the valley, it's like over a hundred almost every day now in the summer. So uh, uh, it, it it does get old. But I remember growing up, and I have no desire to shovel snow distribute rock salt, wear boots, uh, have my joints ache, so I can do heat much better than cold, no doubt. Okay. And uh, what's one daily action that you take to elevate your mental health and physical fitness every day? I get up every day and I do yoga and stretching for about 20 minutes. I do some push-ups. Uh, I exercise. I stretch. Uh, I'm getting back into the gym and doing all of that and I walk and everything. And I've, I've, lo I've actually lost about like 28 pounds since January. I cut out carbs. I would, I saw myself on camera and I look like the Sergeant at arms at the 1962 Teamsters convention, uh, guarding, guarding the door of Jimmy Hoffa. And I said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to look that way. You and I were in the same boat. I just lost 65 pounds. So yeah, uh, I, 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 65 pounds is, is that's a, that's a significant achievement, but yeah. 
but I do I do yoga every morning. I get the mat out. Uh, the the cat my cat comes out of the closet and and stretches with me and watches <laughs> me. Uh, our cat Jake and uh, so I do that I do that every morning. It's gotten to the point where I have to do it every morning. It's become such a set routine, and it and it makes me feel good. It makes me yeah. feel uh, yoga. I I did yoga for like years at a private yoga thing and then when covid started that just mm-hmm. wiped out that business entirely so now i just do it on my own now good for you mm-hmm. uh, what's the single most beautiful site that you've ever visited oh god oh man i don't know i can't uh uh i mean i remember the grand canyon uh i remember uh I think um, I was in Africa and I was at on a safari in Africa back in the 1990s. And there was we were up on a rise and we were looking out of the Savo East Game Park, which is the size of Jamaica. And you see this whole African plain with a herd of elephants covered in red dust crossing. And it's kind of like I felt like. You know, am I really here? Mm. Am I really seeing this? And uh, and then I went back to the to, to get our car because you we had a driver. I was doing work over there, and you don't rent a car in 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 Mombasa and Kenya and just go driving around. It's it's a it's a different world. And so I had a guidebook, and a baboon came up and snatched my guidebook and ran <laughs> off. <with it. laughs> So, so, you know, that doesn't happen in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm scheduled to be uh, on an African safari in uh, February, God willing, uh, depending on where the world is right now. Uh, yeah. And so uh, hopefully it's going to happen. I, I want to go. I want to go back uh, before I get, uh, you know, too old and whatever. It costs a fortune, but there's nothing like it. And I'm also a contributor to the African Wildlife Foundation to try to preserve African wildlife because it's all being wiped. They're all being uh, the, the elephants, the big cats, everything. They're all being exterminated. Uh, the rhinoceroses, most of them are gone totally. And uh, unfortunately, it looks like uh, the generation uh, after my grandchildren, the only way they're going to see these animals is in a zoo someplace. And it's yeah. it's very, very uh, distressing to me that we're just destroying the planet and the pollution and what's happening to the oceans. I don't want to get on a soapbox here and end on a negative note, but uh, I really do think, you know, uh, that, that everyone needs to take stock and do something to, in, in whatever way they can, to try to improve the environment uh, while we're living in it and not just trashing it. Amen. Yes. I've got one last question for you. Uh, in your profession of, I mean, with all the work that you do, when was the one moment that you had to be the strongest at whatever it is that you do in this profession and what got you through it? Um, quite a few years ago, I had a screening where I had a very lovely actress and the person bringing I didn't have an opportunity to talk with her and uh, before 
And so I'm talking with her like 15 minutes before we go on stage to talk about this film. And uh, in talking with her, she looked fabulous. She still looked how she was. But in talking with her, I discovered that her memory was shot. And I mean, like nothing there at all. And so I look at my watch and it's like seven minutes of the hour. We're going to go do this. So I said, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't I take questions? We'll take questions instead of talking or doing an interview or discussion like this. We'll take questions from the audience and then you and I can answer them together. And so she said, "Hun, whatever you want to do is fine. So what we did is I took questions and she actually came up with like two, two little things and I helped her answer them and we got through it. And not everyone really noticed that she was having uh, uh, dementia and memory problems. And I had to end up doing that again with someone who was much more prominent. And I ended up pulling that off as well. And this was someone that I had previously interviewed who was sharp. And then two years later, I had him there and he 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 couldn't remember any, hardly anything. And, uh, uh, I really had compassion for that. And I wanted to protect these people and not expose them or embarrass them in any way. And also conduct a show that people were paying money to see. And I was able to pull both things off. So, uh, I think that was, um, that that did require a level of uh, uh, facileness, if you will, and I was able to pull that off, and I was I was glad that I was able to do that. No, oh, God bless you for that. Uh, I know how important that is, and I've been there. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, we're going to give this book away, and uh, we're going to see who our winner is tonight. Thank you all for being here tonight. And oh, yes. Thank you. Don't go anywhere for a moment. Okay. Uh, uh, so thank uh, Doug. Uh, I know our winner and. Uh, uh, we owe each other a phone call anyway. So, Doug, uh, give me a call in about an hour, and uh, I will get the book to you. You earned it. You deserve this, and thank you. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. Uh, Alan, I'm going to say a few closing remarks, sure. and then I'm going to give you the uh, final word tonight. Uh, okay. I will leave the screen anything you want to say about mm -hmm. anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon or mm -hmm. anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had or just any final closing remark. I hope you had as much fun tonight as I did and you're welcome here at any time. I hope you will come back someday. Um, oh, Richard, I really, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate what you're doing. I mean, you've, you've turned this into the, the Alan K. Rohde show, which is very generous of you, but I really appreciate the fact of what you're doing and the guests that you have and the upbeat uh, motif and nature of your show. I think it's unique and I think it's a good thing uh, as we're in an era now where every time you see something streaming, it's like, oh, another serial killer show or, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, and darkness is great, but one cannot live by darkness alone. And I really appreciate you having me on here and being so kind and generous with me. So thank you very much. Thank you. But don't, again, don't go anywhere for a moment. Not so, me. And everybody, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, and uh, please, uh, even if you didn't win the books tonight, uh, check out Alan's website. Uh, all of the information uh, will be on my YouTube channel. So you can keep up with all the work that Alan is doing. Uh, 
brilliant, brilliant work. And thank you, Ellen, for all that you do. Oh, you're uh, and, uh, so I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the eighth name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Uh, because as my dear friend, Sean Moniger always says, we're always in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. It's important that we have this communication beyond this virtual reality that we're creating for ourselves. So please reach out to our, the people that matter the most to you. But I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So Alan, <laughs> I'm going to leave the screen. It's all yours. And uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say uh, goodbye, the final credits will roll. And once again, I want to thank Ann Kittredge, uh for sponsoring tonight's show and all of the shows this week. And once again, Believe it or not, she has an incredible show called Movie Night, uh, celebrating all the movies. And we all love the movies. So ankittredge.com, that may be her calling now. Check yeah, her out. That uh, is actually my phone. <laughs> um, uh, it's all yours. Okay. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate, Richard, I appreciate your, your kindness and having me on the show and uh, uh, putting me on center stage, so to speak. Uh, I liked your analogy of the, of the boat and the skipper and, and having, uh, having been in the Navy, uh, it did remind me about a, uh, a line from uh, one of my favorite film noirs, Ace in the Hole, where uh, one of the reporters says to Kirk Douglas, uh, come on, uh, we're all in the same boat. And he says, I'm in the boat, you're in the water. So let's see you swim. <laughs> so with that, I just like to thank everybody for watching. And thank you again, Richard. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, come to Noir City, watch, watch old movies, buy the books, because you're helping keeping uh, the flame alive and keeping us all going. So with that, I bid you adieu, and I say good night and good luck. Thank you very much.